Hello, and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is the podcast where we speak to very intriguing and fascinating comedians, performers from across the globe that have stories that will fascinate us, inspire us, and that will astound us. Now, today's guest is an absolute wonder. He, is a, he was the man behind Tinky Winky. He is the man who was in the Teletubbies. He is a comedian that's been going for many decades. And now he is making comedians and audiences laugh in Hungary as well. He is an absolutely remarkable man. Please welcome the brilliant Dave Thompson. Hi, hello Marvin. Um, yes, that was me in the costume. I was eight foot tall with the aerial. And um, you say making people laugh in Hungary as well. Uh, I've actually um, done professional stand-up gigs now in I think it's 48 countries. 48? Outside the UK. And I'm going to be adding to that next month because I'm going back out to Southeast Asia. And I'm hoping to add Cambodia and Vietnam to the list of countries that I performed in. Whoa. Yes. Yeah. That is, I, there was a couple of stories that I have from there. There's a, a comedian that went and did a gig for me from Northern Ireland and he went to Cambodia for a bit and he told yeah. them they were doing gigs and the guy said, oh, you want to do a gig? I'll get you 50 people around. And before he knew it, in the evening, he had 50, he was doing comedy for 50 expats. Wow, it's not like that in Edinburgh. No, definitely isn't. But it's, it's, <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, Dave? Like how, how in some places this, they can't get enough of it, but in like, in where comedy is so saturated, people are like, oh, it's comedy, so mm. what? I've got so many things to do. Yeah, well, they have two categories, really, because when you go abroad, you've either got the expats where they want a taste of home and they want to enjoy a cultural experience that they can't normally have unless they're at home, um, or you're performing to what, the people from that place or to other foreigners, um, and you're not performing to British people, you're performing to the international crowd. And then that's very different then. With, yeah, that's that's what um, Rizzo Van Gaisel told me from Malaysia. Have you done the Malaysian scene? Yeah, I've done it in Kuala Lumpur, yeah. They told me that there's a lot of that over there. Like, like nearly all of them are a mixture of expats or locals. Yeah, well, in, in uh, the, the ones I've done in Malaysia, it was um, in the Crack House Comedy Club in Kuala Lumpur. And uh, they were largely Chinese or Asian, uh, sorry, Chinese or Indian people, uh, with a few Malaysians uh, as well. But but um, in Southeast Asia, a lot of it is you're working for either four or two or both Chinese people and Indian people. Oh, yeah. But very sadly, the comedy club in Kuala Lumpur at the moment has been closed down because they had an open mic night and a, a, a girl, a Malaysian girl, did some very strong uh, and uh, stuff about Islam, which was had a visual element as well. And the club has been closed down and the owner might go to prison. Yes, I saw that. It's, it's um, yeah, it's a big shame. I mean, that we talk about like cancel culture here and all of that, but like, there in certain countries it's so much worse there in terms of the council how you get yeah. cancelled but this is coming from the government not from the people i thought yeah i think it's really harsh i think obviously maybe uh, fair enough they get punished but like 
open mic, there's so many things that go on, you don't know what's going to happen. He, he didn't know that they were going to do that. that was, no, he didn't, no. I feel it's a bit unfair with, with, with Rizal and his, his comedy club. Team. Yeah. yeah, it's a shame. He's a great guy. I know Rizal really well. and He's always been very good to me and treated me very well. And his wife has also been very lovely. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. And he's, so, he's very creative as well. I mean, during the pandemic, they did that pizza thing. Like they created yeah. like a pizza takeaway thing. That was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. They, they've had me in their home um, on two different visits out there. I've been welcomed and entertained in their home. Whoa. Very, very lovely people. He, he will, I think he will find some way of working something out. Cause he's, I hope I've so. Seen, I've seen that he's still doing a few shows. And so it, I think maybe in a couple years or two or three years he'll find some way of getting back i hope so because he's got children to look after <laughs> yeah me too i hope he does he's he's and he was a delight to chat to on the podcast as well he's he's yeah best of luck Riza. and if you need any yeah. support we're here <laughs> yeah we're here <laughs> and yeah, there's, there's quite a, it's quite a big, it's, it's developing in Southeast Asia, isn't it? Like, especially in Singapore and Malaysia. I don't know about like Cambodia or the other nations, but I know that particularly in Singapore and Malaysia, because a lot of them speak yeah. English, this, this scene's really developing. Yeah. And their comics are brilliant. Yeah, They're just as good as the oh, ones. Oh, it is. It's a great team, yeah. It's, and it's, it's I, when I was there in 2019, I performed in, um, in um, Yangon, you know, formerly Rangoon. Ah. In um, Myanmar. Oh, <laughs> how was that? Yeah, that was great. I mean, it was in a four-star hotel. Um, I thought you know it was in a five-star hotel, and again, it was mostly Chinese people in the audience. But uh, it was before it went all a bit tits up over there, you know. So they were still able to have comedians performing and stuff. But then it all went a bit, um, a bit haywire with, you know, again, with government being a bit shitty. There's a lot of infighting there, isn't there? Like I know that An Su Chi went back into there, and then there yeah. was a coup, and then there was another coup. There's a lot of like ins and outs going on, which I don't really. Yeah, know. well, it's a military dictatorship, isn't it? But they didn't they let her in, like become the boss at some point, and then. Yeah, she did. That she got released. I don't know a lot about it, but she got released from prison, and then she became the um, sort of figurehead leader. But then there were then people, I think the treatment of the um, the Muslim Chinese people in China got, they, they were going, I think they were fleeing from persecution in China. Or no, they're already maybe in Myanmar anyway, they were being treated badly. And I think people were then going to Aung San Suu Kyi saying, hang on, you know, we thought you were a good person and a liberal, but how come all these atrocities are being allowed to take place? Ah. I think that's what it was. But then again, you know, when you're in that position, she probably had no choice, you know what I mean? And, you know, she probably had a choice between being thrown out and put back in prison or turning a blind eye to the atrocities that were going on. You know, it's difficult in those situations, isn't it? So she was going to lose either way. There's yeah, exactly. She was in a lose-lose situation. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Southeast Asia is an amazing place in terms of comedy. It's 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 there's mm. so much so much so many things going on there. I mean, yeah. you know, 
that um, especially that guy that he really helped build the scene there, but he's, he's now no longer with us, but he yeah. spoke like 10 languages or something. What's his name? The Australian guy. Yeah, I never met him, but I heard a lot about him. But uh, yeah, Southeast Asia is um, a very interesting place to do comedy. It's also a lot sunnier and hotter than Europe during January and February. Which is why I'm going to be there. <laughs> I, I don't like the European winter, so I'd rather be um, performing and wearing flip-flops and shorts and a t-shirt during the day. Ah. You're not going to wear a suit like Earl Oaken does during... Well, I might, wear, I might wear a suit <laughs> in the evenings, but um, I, I basically want to be in a hot, sunny place in January and February. Um, and in for two years running, I actually also went to South Africa and I did Johannesburg and Cape Town um, in January to get away from the European winter. That, from what I, I spoke to a comic from who moved from Zimbabwe to yeah. South Africa, and he yeah. said that South Africa is proper, like iffy. You know, like we get into trouble in the UK for saying dark or offensive things, but he yeah. told me that when you gig in certain places like Soweto or the townships. If yeah. you go on stage, you may die twice. He said that there was some guy that was with a gun in his pocket and said, look yeah. at my gun. Yeah, well, in Zimbabwe, again, you've got to worry about the uh, the government, you know, and the secret police and so on. But the, the comedy club in Johannesburg, they actually have um, a gun safe. And as people arrive at the comedy club, they have to surrender their guns and they, the guns get put in the gun safe before they're allowed in the club. Yeah, he, he told me that South Africa is a very interesting place and it's like customary to get robbed there. Was it like that? <laughs> well, it is. The thing is, it, it makes it, that's why I'm not going again. It makes it unviable because I mean, it's a lovely place. It's a wonderful country. Um, but when you are gigging there, you, you can't walk to the venue uh, in the evenings and there's no public transport to speak of. So you have to get an Uber from your accommodation to the gig. And if you're doing two gigs in different venues that night, you have to get an Uber between the two venues and then an Uber home. And the cost of the Ubers mounts up to make it not really financially viable to go and uh, work there. Ah, yes, it, it's, it's too... You can't walk around, you, know, you can't walk around at night. <laughs> you can't just say hello to strangers. Well, they might say hello to you first. <laughs> Was, were, were you scared when you were to South Africa? No, I wasn't scared. Uh, one time I went out running, and this was in Cape Town, I went out running and I got lost. And I ended up like where there were these two guys looking at me, and I could see that they were looking around and then looking at me and then looking around, and they were obviously checking, assessing whether it was worth um, attacking me. and Because they, they, they know that the very minimum, they're going to get a pair of running shoes. <laughs> That's the sort of that's the entry level of the mugging. It's going to be a pair of running shoes. <laughs> Are you saying it's like a degree over there? Do you have to go through different qualifications? <laughs> well, that, I mean, in terms of <laughs> mugging, yeah, they, you know, never mind about what I might have in a pocket or anything. They they know that I've got a pair of running shoes because they can see them on the end of my legs. Um, but um, I I did the Cape Town Comedy Club there uh, when I was there, which is on the waterfront in Cape Town. It's all very very lovely. But it's a big room and I went there two years running and headlined it for a week. 
And afterwards, I came to the conclusion that if I was going to go again, I'd rather just go there on holiday and enjoy myself because it's a lot of stress when you're on last in the Cape Town Comedy Club. It's a big venue. And um, it's like the wages were at that time worked out for the headliner. The wages worked out to about £50. Whoa! It was, it was like £300 worth of pressure for £50 every night. And I just thought, no, actually, I'd rather just not have the £50 a night and not have to go through that much pressure. <laughs> well, I mean, it's... it's it... <laughs> Uh, did, did they like you? Did you go well? They, they did. I mean, I, I did go well, but it's quite hard because the shows go on a long time and it's very different there culturally. And also you've got, of course, pay for the Uber to get there and the Uber to get back to your accommodation. <laughs> One so that comes out of your £50 wages. <laughs> that just sounds like a trip in the comedy from going from Birmingham to London doing a pay gig. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but a bit more dangerous. Sad. <laughs> now, with with um, one thing I've noticed, South Africans they seem to have a a very like they don't tolerate bullshit attitudes. Whenever I come across a lot of them, they're very very no nonsense. Whenever each South African I come across, that seems to be their attitude. Yeah, well, it depends, of course, about which South Africans you're talking about because they vary a lot. But um, yes, there is there is a bluntness and an openness which I like. Um, I was told when I was there that that um, like in South Africa, the white the people of white British descent um, are a lot more um, robust than say, for example, the ones in Australia. Because apparently, in the days of the empire, when the ships were going to um, Australia and New Zealand. They would stop at Cape Town in South Africa on the way, and the people who went, who got off at South Africa were the more sort of um, less educated, more working class people. Oh. I don't don't quite know how this fits in with the fact that it was often crim criminals being sent to Australia, <laughs> but that's what they told me. So that the people, the white people, <coughs> ended up living in in South Africa were from a sort of a lower social class than ah. the white people who ended up living in Australia and New Zealand. Convicts accepted. Oh, okay, okay. And so they all went up, you know, to Rhodesia and what have you. And, and so they come from that sort of background of, of more uneducated working class culture. Whereas, for example, the, um, the British people who ended up living in Kenya tended to be more of the upper class people and aristocrats. Ah. Because they went and they, they were like became the gentleman farmers in the... Um, the hills above Nairobi, you know, around Nairobi, where they do all their um, you know, cattle ranching and stuff. And that's why they have all, this is what right off the subject of comedy now, but they, where they had um, that whole thing about the bloke who got murdered, there was some Earl got shot in the head and they never solved the crime. It, was, it still remains unsolved. And it was called, they made a film about it called White Mischief. Hmm. Um, uh, someone wrote a book called White Mischief about it and then they made a film called White Mischief and that was the title was responding to a book by Evelyn Waugh called Black Mischief and that was uh, written about Kenya uh, along you know, in, the, in the middle of the 20th century but um, anyway the, the, the people who 
the white British people who ended up living in Kenya tended to be more from the sort of upper class public school background. Oh, that's, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Oh, okay. And that, that, even though that was a long time ago, the, the repercussions still carry on. So that might be why you made the comment about people in South Africa being, you know, no bullshit and being telling you as it is because uh, they came from that more um, sort of sort of Hi, I think we lost the signal a bit. Yes, I think we did. Uh, yeah. You said we we're, were up to the bit about that's why I thought people from South Africa were no nonsense because yeah. they're from the convicts. Yeah. And they, come, they come from the, low, the, the, uh, the lower social class. Um, or maybe I should say it's like a different social class, otherwise it sounds snobby. But um, I, when I was there in uh, Cape Town, I was doing a, the last time I was there, I was doing like a week uh, performing in the Cape Town Comedy Club, which is a great club, and the people who run it are really nice people to deal with. Um, but uh, there was a girl there who was a, a black South African girl, and she was very young, like in her early 20s, like really early 20s, and she was doing um, guest spots and sort of, you know, just on the very, very first attempts and experiments about doing, doing stand-up. And um, I put her name on the, on the guest list so that she could come to a show without having to pay. She wasn't at that level where they would let her in for free, you know. And um, and we were talking, and she she was very um, obviously very ambitious and very well dressed, and, and obviously came from quite a wealthy family, you know, by the standards of South Africa. So so she she worked very hard in an office job in the daytime, and she was very well dressed with sort of quite expensive, very smart clothes. And she really cared about her appearance, you know. She had her hair done nice and jewellery and you know quite sophisticated and obviously you know a sort of the I'm going places and I'm a successful person sort of vibe about it and we were sitting chatting in the sort of um, social area of the dressing room uh, after the show and um, I don't know how it came up in conversation but I said about um, there was that uh, slogan in South Africa amongst the, uh, the black South Africans some years ago called um, and it was one settler one bullet and, and that was a big slogan, one settler, one bullet. What it basically meant was one white person, one bullet to kill them. And um, uh, and I mentioned this thing about one settler, one bullet. And she, without blinking or flinching or hesitating, said, yeah, I still believe in that. <laughs> <laughs> and I sort of thought, oh, OK, right. <laughs> I just got you in for free. I just bought you a drink. Uh, I'm trying to be, uh, you know, include you and everything and like give you a leg up. And I introduced her to the owner of the club. And she just without hesitation says, yeah, I would like to shoot every white person dead. <laughs> <laughs> what, it's quite funny. What did they say? <laughs> what was it? Well, just, well, I, I think we just changed the subject. <laughs> <laughs> Let's change it. <laughs> she didn't pull a gun out of a handbag, that's for sure. <laughs> right, that's, that's quite a story. <laughs> but also in South Africa, there's a, there's a bit of where there's quite a few poor white South Africans as well now. Like there's since since. I think there are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I haven't been there since before the pandemic, but yes, um, there are a lot of poor people, and a lot of people are struggling a lot as well. Um, someone told me 
that um, a, a, well, I know this guy, he's a South African guy, and he said that if you want to, um, you know, marry a pretty young white South African girl, it's not difficult because the uh, the South Africans have South African passports, and that's very restricted. Restricts on where they can go, and. Um, if you want to marry one, then you know, there'll, there'll be a lot of pretty young white South African girls who are only too keen to marry anybody who can get them out of South Africa. <laughs> so just just show your British passport out. Hello. Yeah, and they'll marry it. Yeah. <laughs> not this is not a subject I ever intended to get into. <laughs> I'm sure there a lot of people would be um, you know sharpening their knives if they sort of heard me saying this sort of thing. I'm not advocating any of this. I'm just reporting what, I'm, <laughs> what I've seen and heard. Of course. <laughs> I didn't plan to talk about it, but you no, never know I'm, what's going to happen. I'm not on any dating sites in South <laughs> Africa. Now, this is going to be an interesting segue, Dave. Yeah. <laughs> um, has, I mean, we're both from Britain and we're all yeah. spoken about South Africa, like you're in Hungary now. Yeah. It's, but you've. We had a little chat earlier in terms of um, that comedy in Hungary because it's quite a lot of mixture. Mm. Is there any sort of similarities you notice from your time of being in TV as Tinky Winky and then your time mm. doing comedy in different harsh, different nations? Is there anything you've noticed in terms of similarity, like maybe in the coldness of audiences or because you mentioned that you said in TV that TV can be quite brutal. And yes. in some ways, it's the brutality that you see to TV similar to what you would see in some of the nations you go to in terms of if audiences. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean, I think humans are humans wherever they are and whatever they're doing. Um, and you get human traits. Uh, but there are, they are very different fields, really. Because. Um, uh, Working it like doing the Teletubbies, there was no audience there, so we were we weren't you know performing to audiences. We were performing to cameras, and the people that we were dealing with were the um, the producers and the people who ran the whole TV company, um, and that's very different, obviously, from dealing with members of the public <laughs> who play evening's entertainment in Prague, you know. But um, uh, I think, on the whole. Um, show business um, is sort of pigs around the trough and if you go into working in the arts uh, or into comedy or acting you are a pig around the trough and there's not enough room in to get your snout into the trough and there's not enough uh, swill in the trough to feed everybody as much as they want to eat so as a result it's very competitive and with the higher the stakes, the more treacherously people are prepared to behave. So it's all about, you know, it can, not always, but it can be a lot about money, status and power. And where there's money, status and power at stake, people will stab people in the back and um, do whatever's necessary to get that money, status and power. So you're saying that show business is like Game of Thrones? Yeah, I haven't actually seen Game of Thrones, although some of it was filmed in Hungary, and I I know people who are in it. But um, yes, it is. I mean, it, you know, it was ever thus. Um, I think to share around, then the more decently these people behave, 
and there are always exceptions when people will you know deny themselves and sacrifice themselves to behave decently to somebody else in terrible circumstances but um um yeah one has to be prepared for the fact that people might behave horribly to you one and television is you know because the stakes are so high and there's so much money and status and power concentrated into that screen um, and what happens on the screen and what people you know see on the screen that that some people will behave in a you know particularly horrible way um i was once told by a producer that he was told in, in the early part of his career there are three rules for working in television number one you put money in front of anything else number two never tell the truth where a lie will do and number three don't ever hesitate to stab somebody in the back Ooh. yeah yeah that's <laughs> whoa <laughs> that, that... That's, that, that, I mean, the last bit's a lot of advice that, you, that your mummy and daddy would tell you not to do. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, having said that, there are also lots of really lovely people. And most of my friends are comedians. And, um, you know, there's a great um, brotherhood stroke sisterhood amongst comedians because, um, you know, we're all on our own. Uh, we're on our own when we're on stage. We're on our own beforehand when we're preparing to go on stage and feeling nervous and insecure. And we're on our own afterwards, whether it's been a great gig, in which case we're feeling fantastic, but it's our own personal success. It's not one that we've shared with other people in, as an ensemble. And we're on our own with the failure and the gloom if it's gone badly. Um, it's a very solitary thing. And I think um, people compensate for that by having an understanding you know, there's an understanding amongst comedians and a bond because we are all lone wolves um, and we all only other comedians know what it feels like to be a lone wolf um, so you know you can go to Kuala Lumpur or Singapore or probably Sydney in Australia and go into a comedy club and straight away you'll talk to other comedians and it's like you've known each other for years because you're all you know you all know what it's like and you, you've all got common experience yeah I, I yeah i think one thing that i would i think that i would like to put more to as you mentioned with everything there is that i do love talking to other comics about comedy yeah and i yeah. think being disciplined enough to avoid the other things which could incriminate you or people could twist as you said the yeah. step. i think one thing i do love talking to other comics is comedy and comedians will freely talk about it it's very interesting comedy. Like it's like a puzzle all the time, trying to figure out why this works or that works. Yeah, yeah. But I do, as you said, I did notice that during my time in Goliath, that there's a lot of similarities with comedians and um, comedians and actors. But I think yeah. the one thing that comedians do have more so than actors is we deal with rejection maybe better. Yeah, yeah. But there is a lot of similarity. And also, you talk about the clown. Um, most of what Philippe Gaulier teaches is the august clown. They have different categories of clowns. Ah. So they've got like the Piero and they've got the august. And <laughs> when, when we talk about the clown, we're probably thinking of the august clown as opposed to the Piero. Yeah. Because a Piero is, is still fits the description of a clown, but they're not always trying to be funny. They're the ones with the, like, the little white cap 
and the, and the frilly collar. And they, um, uh, like, you know, in the video for, for Let's Dance by David Bowie. Yeah. That's the, they, they dress as a, a Piero. Um, and the Pieros, what you'd get in seaside resorts, you'd get a team of Pieros and they would all just sing songs or play musical instruments and they wouldn't do any comedy or try to be funny in any way. But they were still technically clowns. And then in a circus, you get the Piero is a sort of authority figure who's bossing the other clowns around. And the, and the ones who are the sort of low status buffoon idiots are the, are the august. And, and that's what we think of when we think of clown. And in America, they often call that the hobo. Mm. So it's not just the august, it's the hobo. They call it the hobo clown. <laughs> and in stand-up comedy, there are different types of personae. Um, so for example, um, I'm trying to think of an example now, uh, like some comedians would be, so have you heard of Sean Mio, for example? Yeah, he's, he's a brilliant comic. He, li he li lives in London. Pardon? Oh, he, he, well, he, the Sean, Sean Mio is, is a, yeah, Sean Mio is an example of um, a smart-ass comedian, right? And Jack D is a is another example of a smart-ass comedian where they're high status and they um, are uh talking down about things um you know that the whole stance is of one of superiority and being high status so that would be one example of a type of stand-up co comedian persona and another example of a stand-up comedian persona would be the lovable buffoon and they are very much have a lot in common with the clown so for example tim vine harry hill um um eric morcom you know from morcom and wise tommy cooper um and um, Rick Mayle, when he did stand-up comedy, because he started out as a stand-up comedian, oh. that the lovable buffoon type of comedian is very similar to the clown. Steve Martin, when he used to do stand-up comedy. What? Okay, and would you, you did you say that the main stand-up comedy personas are three types, did you say? No, there are, well, there's there's an academic theory which says that there are nine types of persona, nine different personae of stand-up comedians, okay. and two of them are smart arts and lovable buffoon. Hmm. <clears throat> which would you say you are? What's your? <laughs> well, I think I've got a lot of lovable buffoon in me because I'm also no, I like I like the clown type approach, and. Um, I've also have had a character I do called Naughty the Clown, which is a clown, which I have done at various times, not in necessarily in the, in the stand-up environment as a, as a self-contained act, but in various contexts, I've, I've done my Naughty the Clown character. Um, and and uh, that he, is, you know, he is a clown. He says he's a clown. You know, it's in the title, Naughty the Clown. It's yeah, it's funny you mention all the like the personas and clown. You mentioned about uh, stand up. Yeah, there's 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 like three different types of clowns as well, isn't there? There's this. It's I know that was three that are pointed out to me. Like you said the there's the just there's the character clown, and then there's um there's there's three different main types, isn't there, of clowns? Like the white face, the Augusta, and the character clown. They're the main ones, right? What's the one you say? The counter clown. The character clown. 
the character clown. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I, I don't know. I, isn't the character clown just an august, but wearing a costume? There's a, no, I was looking, no, there was a, there's, when I went to Goria, there was a guy who told me briefly about the different cat, categories of clowns. Oh, right. There's, but there's also the Buffon as well. And he used to do a separate workshop on the Buffon, which I never did. I wish I had, but I never did it. And apparently, Sasha Baron Cohen, he did the clown and he also did the Buffon. And, and what he does in his films, you know, with Ali G and, and um, uh, Borat uh, and the other ones, he's basically being the Buffon, apparently. He's, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny what he does in terms of like, he makes you think you're the idiot, but he's actually making a fool out of you. Whilst like Tommy yeah. Cooper is the idiot in that, in whatever yeah. he does. Yeah, well, the Buffon has another level. And obviously the Buffon, the word Buffon, is linked to our word, the buffoon, but it doesn't mean the same thing. You know, the French word buffon and buffon in the context of what Philippe Gaulier taught is a different um, entity from the buffoon or the clown. It's quite a... But I, I do feel that with the Gaulier, it's something that I really want to get into. Like, I would like to study more about the clowning that they use in circuses. Because a part of what I see in Goli is that that's more theatre-based mm. than actually sort of circus-based. And I've seen a few things yeah. and I would like to... I think there's things that are missing from what Goli teaches in terms of the circus. Yeah, well, he's a teacher. I mean, and he, he did... Um, I mean, I know he's, he's fantastic and everything, but he stopped performing and became a teacher. And so when you become a teacher and you're just talking the talk and not walking the walk, obviously it's going to become a different dynamic from if you were talking to somebody who just walks off stage after entertaining a theatre full of 2,000 people. Do you, what do you feel of, like, this, how true would you say the statement is if you want to get better at something, you need to teach it? Rather than... um, if you want to get better at something as a teacher? Yeah, like, if you want to understand what you do more, teach it yeah. to someone else. That's a common thing that I always hear from people. Yeah. Um, well, if you want to understand what you do more, you can you can spend time thinking about what you're doing. Um, <laughs> videoed and watch the videos, and and that will tell you a lot. But otherwise, yes, you can go to people who. I mean, there are people, aren't there, who um, do coaching and uh, who do directing for comedians. And some of them, I think, are probably very good. And I think others, I suspect, and I don't know, but I suspect some of them might be um, doing that because they can't get work as a comedian. And so the next, you know, it's a classic cliche, isn't it? Those that can, do. Those that can't, teach. So, you know, if you go to um, Lee Mack and say, Lee Mack, can you teach me about comedy? The answer is going to be, well, sorry, I'm doing a very busy tour and then I've got a TV show and I'm too busy being funny to teach you, <laughs> funny, you know, but if you go to someone else who's there saying, well, I'm not doing any performing, I'm here and I'm available to teach you how to be funny. The chances are that they probably aren't, they probably haven't got the answers because if they had the answers, they'd be doing it themselves. 
So, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're a comedian and you can't get enough gigs and you need to pay the bills, what do you do? You get, you teach workshops. <laughs> you're being very brutal. <laughs> I, I might be being brutal. And, and what, I'm, what I'm saying is not true to everybody who teaches. <laughs> so, for example, John Gordillo, um, he teaches comedy and he does directing and coaching. And if I had the money and time, I would go to John and I would lap up everything he's, he's got because I know John well enough to know that he is a brilliant comedian. And he chose, for whatever reasons, best known to him, he chose to take his foot off the accelerator with his own performing and spend time teaching and facilitating other people in their performing. Um, and so he, I wouldn't include in that category. I don't question for one second his his amazing insights and brilliance and his ability to help people get funnier. Um, but there are other people out there who I suspect maybe aren't, you know, that great and don't have all, all the answers. But you know, I'm not. I'm not. I don't want to be denigrating. You know, teaching is a great thing, and some people are more able to teach than they are to to do it you know and they can help you and lead you but i think a lot of i think that for everyone who's a genuine genuinely good teacher who could take take you somewhere and get you help you get funnier there are probably several who are just a failed comedian and this is their secondary way of trying to make some money <laughs> yeah it is no it is that is yeah <laughs> i don't want to i might be wrong i'm not saying i'm right i could be wrong but um, I don't know. I don't care whether I'm right or wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you you you're at the point where you don't. It's well, I I don't need. I don't feel any need to bring other people around to my opinion. You know, my diary next week consists of flying to Holland and touring around Holland doing stand-up comedy. That's what I care about. I care about whether those audiences find me funny, and whether the promoters ask me to come back and perform there again. That's what I care about. But whether my opinion on something is right or wrong, I don't really care about it. It's just... Because we're all, we're all idiots. We're all stupid idiots groping around in the dark. Um, and I don't claim to be anything other than an idiot groping around in the dark. And would you say... Yeah, that, that's, but that's, that's a... One of the things at the circuit is a lot of when we grow up in the circuit or when we're building up, we worry so much about those things. Whilst yeah, you, you you really couldn't give a toss. You would just let it all out there. And just, well, yeah. I, the thing is, is that people change their view, don't they? So you know, you meet a politician who's age sixty, and they probably have very different opinions to what they had when they were thirty, and they then they probably had different opinions to what they had when they were twenty. So whether it's views on politics or whether it's views on other things as we go through life we change and develop our opinions so if i'm talking to a 25 year old and they're you know telling me what they think i'm getting <laughs> a window into what they think but i know that in 25 years time when they're 50 they might have a different opinion and a different view so you know how valid is a view when it's probably going to change and it probably has changed already from what it was, you know, a year ago, you know, some time ago. So we're all, you know, we're only humans, and we, as humans as a species, are a load of complete idiots, aren't we? You know, we're killing ourselves and a whole load of other species off 
with our behavior. We're collectively committing suicide as a species. So how would we expect to have any sense or valid opinions from any of us? Oi, don't make us cry. Don't make us upset. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that, that's, that's when we're, when we're, yeah, you, you don't want to, you don't, you don't try and pander be anything. You just be yourself. And this is what I think rather than trying to say, oh, I'm this or I'm that. You just get straight to the point. Yeah. Well, I do, I do what feels right to me and I do what I think at the time is right. But, um, and I, I try not to hurt other people. It's not like I'm so cynical. I'm saying, well, all humans are all <laughs> so, so I might as well just go into a McDonald's with a samurai sword and slash away and kill a whole load of families. You know, I'm not that cynical. But, um, <laughs> I certainly wouldn't, um, I wouldn't make any attempt to get another person to come around to my views on a certain name of uh, concept or political situation or war or <laughs> British politician or strike or whatever it might be. You know, I, I feel no need to bring any other people around to what I think. If they, you know, they can think what they think and I'll think what I think and I, I don't feel any need to sway any, anyone else around to what I think. I mean, obviously, if someone was holding a knife at my throat and they believed that I should die now, I would probably be trying to persuade them. That... <laughs> <laughs> with, um, with sort of clowning and doing comedy, Yeah. one thing I want to say about that, would you ever do that to try and put up a mugger? Like if you were in one of these, would you, would you ever try and put, put, use some of the techniques to put people off? Well, it's funny you should ask that because I have also been <laughs> of martial arts for many years. Um, I study Aikido, which is a Japanese martial art. And they say in clown that the greatest clown needs to do nothing. And they say in martial arts, the greatest martial artist or the greatest warrior need do nothing. And there is a lot in common between martial arts and clowning. And one of the things that is in common is that you move the person's mind. So if you're a comedian on stage telling a joke, you do the setup and then you move their mind with the punchline and they laugh, hopefully. And if someone attacks you and tries to mug you, then ideally you move their mind so that their attack is deflected and you're able to neutralize it. But clowning isn't really, is a little bit different to that though, isn't it? In terms yeah, of there's what? a lot in common and there's a lot different, but um, there is a lot similar. But um, if someone tried to attack me, first of all, I would try not to put myself in a situation where I was likely to be attacked. But then if I did have a situation where someone tried to mug me, I would try to move their mind and yes, that might involve some sort of comedy or lightheartedness. You, yeah, you would you would charm them. You would you would Ideally, yeah, I would I would I would try to um because the person is not now as they say in martial arts, it's not the knife or the gun that's dangerous, it's the person holding the knife or the gun. And if you can change their mind, then then the gun and the, or the knife is no longer a threat. Okay. Of course. 
It's a bit like verbal judo, isn't it? It is like verbal judo. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, um, yeah. I mean, the the beauty of clowning and comedy is that we can theorize as much as we like, but you can't actually ever replace the actual real thing. You know, the, the authentic moments of something being funny or somebody tripping over and dropping a tray full of glasses or whatever it is you know that is the pure event and that is the moment and anything other than that moment is just theorizing and becomes academic theory okay well a bit of bit, what, what would you say with clowning being different with stamp being different what would you say is the process of creating funny bits with a clown and how is it different to stand up because i've i've noticed some, when i try and do clowning if i set something up and i'm not too sure where things are going to go well, i can create something funny but when i know certain things and i try and recreate it that is where it's difficult but with yeah. stand up if you have a joke and you know it works you can sort of repeat it and again and again but you've got to change certain things so it feels like you're delivering a new joke yeah well a comedian is is more in control because a comedian is doing a joke and so they they've sort of probably got it planned um and they are they are working within certain parameters and a certain comfort zone in a way so for example i walk on stage to tell some jokes and i take the mic out of the stand and the wire falls out of the mic and drops on the floor and that moment is the clown because I I didn't intend it to happen. And before I've even opened my mouth to tell my first joke to the audience, I've something's gone wrong and I've lost control and they laugh, not because I made them laugh, but because they saw something going wrong and they saw me in a vulnerable situation where I've lost control. And I then have to, you know, pick that, bend over, pick the mic, wire up find how it fits back into the mic and plug it back in before I can then start on my first joke which was the planned rehearsed bits of the act so that moment when I take the mic out of the stand and the lead falls out unexpectedly that's the clown that's when the clown comes in but one of the things that I found interesting that when you try and recreate that it's completely gone like I know that there was do you know Vigo Ren no, I don't think so. Well, he did some incredible thing where he beat the comedy gong show, where he just did some funny dance where he was just taking his top off. He would, he would listen to a dance yeah. song and it just, and that, and that seemed to work. And it, it is quite planned, but you can feel like he's enjoying it and he's going to flow and it works brilliantly. And if I were, as you mentioned, a microphone, even mm. though where you know where certain points are, like sometimes when I'm doing magic, I know I, I, I sometimes fail about it and it works. Mm. And I'm still, even though I know, know I'm deliberately doing the magic so it fails, I know what points to hit. It's still not quite as effective as when I, the first time I do it where it fails. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that it's, a, it's about the moment. I mean, comedy is about the moment between the audience and the performer. You know, I'm talking about live comedy. Um, and whether you're a clown or whether you're a stand-up, your substance with which you're working is the moment between you and the audience. Whereas an artist paints a painting and 
hundreds of years after they're dead, that painting is still a work of art. You know, it might change its context. The painting is a static thing and it can exist after they're dead. But, you know, with, with us, when we do a stand-up comedy performance, by the time the audience have walked across the car park and unlocked the car, it's it's they've forgotten it you know it's over they might have some memories of it but it's they've probably forgotten our name and it's over you know it's it's an what i'm talking about is it's an ephemeral thing our, our substance is time and it's the moment and it's an ephemeral thing as opposed to a novelist or a painter who does something and then that thing then exists after they're dead or it could be like they remember us forever as someone that scared them on stage or that we were so bad Thing that, that we convince them to do comedy. Yeah, well, that you know that can happen, <laughs> but also, um, like memories are different from the moment, aren't they? So people can have memories of a comedy performance, but that's different from the moment in which they experience a comedy performance. Yeah, and that, that's that's one of the things that annoys me when I hear people talk about comics like Louis C.K. or some of the big names, they say, oh, he's not that funny, I see him on TV. Of course he's not. You're not there seeing him and seeing how good he is. Different medium, yeah. That annoys me when Different I hear medium. that. As soon as it becomes videoed and you're watching it on a screen, it's a different medium. And it's amazing how many people have only watched comedy on their phone and they've never seen it live in a room. And when they watch it live in a room, they, it's, it's a revelation for them because they thought they understood the medium of stand-up comedy, but what they're doing is they're watching it on their phone or on their TV, which is, it's still stand-up comedy, but it's a different medium to being in a room in a group of people who are all experiencing a comedian together. It, yeah, it, it's, it really annoyed me. Someone said, said, oh, I watched a bit of Louis C.K. and it was, you know, I did some bit, it was just as good, but you've not seen him live, how good he is or how good he is. Stop trying to like judge on the TV screen, like, yeah, yeah it, it, I don't know. I just feel it's disrespectful to someone who's as good a comic as him. I mean, as a person, I wouldn't want him near yeah. my daughter, but I mean, no. as a comedian, he is bloody amazing. Yeah, you wouldn't want to be locked in a room with him. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> I wear masks, so nothing. <laughs> You'd wear PPE. <laughs> yes, uh, you know, COVID mask. <laughs> Yeah. It's, Poor guy is never going to live that down, is he? But comedy is treated with a lot of disrespect, and it, it's it's that people treat it wrongly. They think it's just uh, yeah. Do you find it sometimes annoying when you talk about comedy and people treat it with, you know, like it's just throwing a nappy on you, or like? Well, it, it's yeah. I mean, it's um, it's it's given all sorts of. Um, Given all sorts of treatments, isn't it? But it's all—it was always the same, you know. I mean, at one time, comedians would be the court jester, wouldn't they? And then it was all about entertaining the king. And and if the king was displeased, you'd have your head shut, cut, uh, cut off. Yeah, I mean, we complain about comedy now when it doesn't work yeah. in front of audiences. But yeah, but a bad gig then was a lot worse. <laughs> oh, it's. But it's a great, it's, it's it's a great, it's a great little thing we do. Though. I mean, it's it's the the feeling we get when it works well is amazing. But it... yeah, the highs are high and the lows are low. There, there was a I saw sort a of really funny cartoon once when when I was a kid, long before I ever became a comedian. And and the the cartoon was of um uh, the classic sort of cliche of the people in the dungeon when they're sort of on on the 
chains up with you know their arms and with their wrists in rings you know iron rings which were attached into the wall of the dungeon and there's uh someone's just been thrown into um a dungeon and there's a there's a court jester uh chained to the wall you know hanging there on the wall and the court the caption is uh, the court jester saying uh to the person who's just been thrown in uh, it was going so well until I mentioned the Queen's moustache. Uh, <laughs> I always thought that was just a really funny, brilliant cartoon, you know. But, <laughs> but you just set the whole um, scenario in your head that the court jester, jester is entertaining the king and the queen, and you know maybe a few other courtiers, and the gig's going really well, and he set, gets a bit overconfident, and he refers to the Queen's moustache. At which moment, <laughs> suddenly the gig's over. And he's led away and thrown, thrown into a dungeon and chained to the wall. <laughs> but I mean, nowadays, we, most of the time, we just have to do it figuratively in the mind. Yeah, yeah. Now, nowadays, the equivalent would be that <laughs> you know, someone reports that you did something inappropriate and you end up being cancelled. Yeah, so it's not that bad, is it? Being cancelled. <laughs> 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 no. <coughs> no. I've listened to like a couple of podcasts you said before, and you said one of the biggest advice in comedy, and it's quite obvious. You say, "Don't be yeah. a prick," and just be. Don't be a prick. Well, effectively, you said, "Be nice to people. Don't don't be an arsehole." Oh right, okay. Did I say that? I, it was in that interview that I mentioned you with the American guys. They said you mentioned just be nice to people. How? Yeah. Sorry, we had another little outage then. Ah, okay. That's so I don't know whether you want to go back or not, but you you froze on my screen, so you might want to go back and do that a bit a bit again in case we lost it. Okay. So, in another podcast that I saw you on, you said that one of the advice you give to performers and entertainers, yeah, to be just just don't be a, just don't be a cunt. Uh, is that is there is that still something you would sort of stand by now like in terms of like just 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 be be all right be easy going don't be a pushover but be be cool i think so yeah i mean i i think i would extend that to um everything in life you know whatever you know if you work in a shop or walking down the street or on a bus or anything but um i i think in comedy We've got enough problems as it is, and it's enough of a challenge as it is, without creating problems that don't need to exist by creating enemies. Hmm. You know, why create enemies? And there's the old cliche, which is, uh, you know, be nice to people up on the way up because you're going to meet them again on the way down. And I don't know whether I heard it from you, but I heard this from someone where. If you spend so much time, like if you stab someone in the back, you will spend so much time looking over your shoulder rather than yeah. on your actual job at hand. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, different people have their own standards, but personally, I would rather be, you know, treat people decently and um, hope that that will come back to me um, rather than you know, behave in a nasty way to people and be looking over my shoulder. Um, not everyone has that way, that approach, but that's always been my approach. Some people are. 
Well, also goodwill is it is priceless, isn't it? You know, if if you've got goodwill, um, then it, it's uh, it's a, worth a lot more than sometimes millions of pounds in the bank is. Mm. But the million pounds does help. Well, it does help. I mean, if you can have goodwill and a million pounds in the bank, then that's uh, then you then you that's true success. Who's would you say like with all the comedians or performers you've been with, who's yeah. like someone you feel that is, despite with all these things going on, like despite their success, despite their all these things going on, they've remained grounded. Because I think if you look at Conor McGregor, the success he's had has completely got him off kilter, and like the amount of skill or like. Um, it will take a lot of discipline and work to remain grounded if you achieve yeah. certain certain thresholds. And who is someone would you say has achieved such a great threshold but has remained quite grounded? I think Harry Hill has remained grounded. Um, and um, Ben Elton, he's remained very grounded. What do you think it is about those two in particular that has made them able to keep up? I think one? it's because they come from. Um, I think they had good parenting in their early days, but also they're family people. You know, I think if you have a family, and no matter how well last night's gig went, but today you're looking after children and you're with a. Uh, you know, a, a girlfriend or wife or husband or whatever, then um, then I think that's a very grounding thing. Whereas the people who don't get married or don't have a constant relationship are more likely to spend that time, you know, with the bottle or the crack pipe. <laughs> is, is there a crack pipe there? <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I cover all bases, personally. <laughs> um, no, uh, there's always a crack pipe. There's or there's 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 the if it's not a crack pipe, it's a, it's the uh, a symbolic. You know, it's just a, another version of the crack pipe. It's it's LSD or it's uh... yeah. I mean, I mean, for people, you know, for for comedians in show business, there's gambling. You know the horse racing, driving too fast. Um, you know, there's also there's all they're always um, that that someone I, I was watching when I was a kid. I was watching a documentary about Elton John, and this was like before Elton John was even anything like as successful as he became. And the person on in the documentary, the narrator said that many um, people can live with failure, but not many people can live with success. And I thought that was a very insightful thing. So. You know, most people in the entertainment business don't become successful and lots of people are able to live with failure. But the ones who become really successful, not all of them are able to live with success. So sometimes it can go that you're a failure, but you stay alive <laughs> or you're a massive success, but you end up being killed by it. Figuratively or literally. Yeah. So, you know, people. You know, they they do it in whatever way. You know, they they crash a car, or they drink themselves to death, or you know whatever it is that they do, whatever vice gets hold of them. 
but if if you um i think if you have family then you're less likely to go off the rails because having children to look after is a very grounding experience hmm. not all you know i mean obviously i think with so many times it's hard it's, it's hard to theorize you have to just look at an individual and comment on an individual person rather than just generally generalize about you know everyone and then it becomes a lot more vague and more likely to be um uh, inaccurate yes yeah, true okay well i've got a i've got a, i've got a few more years to be less of a cunt so. <laughs> <laughs> um well i hope i have too <laughs> fingers crossed yeah now, for anyone who's listening right now, how do they find out about you and like your work? Um, well, um, they probably can't because I don't really make any effort to publicize myself. Having said that, um, this is probably like going to get dated very quickly, but I am teaching a clowning workshop on Saturday, the 25th of February, 2023. So if anyone is interested in doing a clowning workshop in London, and it's not yet Saturday, the 23rd of February, 2023, um, sorry, 25th, it's not yet Saturday, the 25th of February, 2023, then they could um, go, it's that run by um, Alfie Notes at We Are Funny Project. Oh, okay. They could go on We Are Funny Project and look up to do my clowning workshop on the 25th of February, 2023. If it's after then, then just disregard that completely, unless you've got a time machine. Um, and the following week, Saturday, the 4th of March, I'm teaching a workshop in stand-up comedy in London for Alfie Noakes and the We Are Funny Project. Um, but on a more broad level, um, I did write a novel, which is loosely based on my own life. And it's called The Sex Life of a Comedian. And um, it's available on lulu.com or Amazon. You could, it's on Amazon Kindle, but there's also a paperback version which you can buy through Amazon. But I do hastily add that there are lots of scenes of sex and drug taking, and it's only suitable if you're over the age of 35. Oh, okay. Why 35? <laughs> well, I just said that. Um, <laughs> it's not it's not for people who are under the age of 18, you know, because it does have a lot of sex and drug taking in it. Okay. There is a story. There's like a sort of a thriller story with a beginning, a middle and an end. If you take out all of the sex and drug taking, but it does. It's about a stand up comedian who works on the comedy circuit and then gets a job wearing a blue furry costume in a world famous TV show. Ah, okay. but it, it's a mythologization of my life okay well, that's great that's... yeah it's called the sex life of a comedian by dave thompson so if you want to buy the novel then um and if you're interested in comedy and what it's like being a comedian then um it might you might find it interesting some people love it um certain celebrities of, of um you know it's, it's talked about in the groucho club as being a, you know, a great work other people, it's not their cup of tea. It, it, I never got around. To, I was going to have it published by a proper publisher, but then I fell out with them, and I, I self-published it. And I've never got around to properly promoting it because when I had children, it just everything just went out the window basically. So um, it still doesn't have a proper cover with a picture on it, 
but it's got endorsements by Ben Elton and Harry Hill on the cover. Um, and um, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it's the best thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's the same with any novel, isn't it? Or, you know, any sort of work of art. Some people like it, some people don't like it. Okay. Yeah, uh, send me the link for it and I'll put it in the episode. Oh, great. Okay. Cheers. Yeah. We'll do. And if they want to see you live, where do they go? Well, they just go and see me at some <laughs> shitty comedy club somewhere. Uh, <laughs> that's because that tends to be what I do. I, I don't, I've never really got, I should do, but I've never really done, I like to work up a whole one hour show. I mean, I have done it. I did one in Edinburgh once. I did a one hour show in Edinburgh a long time ago. But um, I'm not really an Edinburgh sort of guy. I don't really like um, Edinburgh. Uh, and at that time in August, I'd much rather be lying on a beach in the Mediterranean somewhere than, um, than being in a fucking shitty, rainy country. So um, I don't bother with Edinburgh. I just do what I do. You know, I mean, I do whatever screen acting I can do. Um, and in between it, I do stand up comedy. So I don't know where you'll see me. You know, you just might walk into a comedy club <coughs> on stage performing. Um, yeah. You know, or you probably by the law of averages I won't be but um, I don't really care anyway <laughs> well if it's if they come to see you it'd be nice but if not no worries yeah I'm not that bothered you know go and see someone else they're probably funnier than me <coughs> what about the law of averages you've got to compare the laughs per minute yeah well true but again see uh, there's <coughs> we go with all these things about who's better than who or comedy competitions and all this stuff because it's an art form and you know it's not a sport you know if i wanted to be better than someone else or i wanted to know what my position was in a, a pecking order or a status hierarchy i'd have become an athlete or i'd have joined the armed forces and I, then i'd know what my rank is but i'm a comedian i'm an artist and i do it i mean i need to be commercial to earn money to support my children and my ex-wife but um uh beyond that i i do it as an art form and and it's it's a self-expression it's 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 an artistic quest and and uh, a spiritual quest even and i do it to um satisfy myself and uh and to explore and to express my inner life to map out my inner life into the world around me um and it's an art form and you know we all have our own plow to furrow so i don't care whether you know another comedian is considered better than me or worse than me because it, it you know quite frankly it, it, in my world it, it makes no difference yeah but in edinburgh you you achieve all of that but you'd be so broke with, well uh, i've been you know, luckily i i'm somehow i don't know how but i've managed to um earn enough from show business to um I'm now sitting in a big three-story house with another house um, whoa, whoa, whoa. with no mortgage or paid for by my show business career, but unfortunately owned by my ex-wife as part of the divorce settlement. Um, and then I've got a house in on the south coast of England, which has got almost no mortgage left on it. And I've got a, a, a beautiful Audi A3 two-litre um, FSI Sport in both countries, identical Audis in both countries. <laughs> So I, I drive, you know, sometimes, not always, but sometimes I drive to long-term parking at Gatwick and park my beautiful Audi in the car park and then get a plane. And then I'm met at, in the airport here in Budapest 
by my ex-wife driving an identical Audi A3 um, to drive me back here. And my my ex-wife lets me live here, even though she now owns the property. Ah, but you get to do gigs there. You could you could you could do a little gig in the garden, but in both places. Well, I do. I you know I I mean it's I do have I do enjoy living in in both places. And I've got identical things in both places. It's not only the Audi A3, but I've got I've also got other things which are, I've got one here and one in Britain. And I like having, you know, exactly the same thing in both countries. Whether it's a tray or a mug, uh, or even a particular print of something or an item of clothing. And the same with stage props and stuff. I've got like all my stage props. Not I'm not that prop heavy, but I do have some stage props. So I've got the whole stuff here in Hungary then I've got the whole stuff in Britain so for example next week I'm flying from Budapest to Holland and I've got my sort of I've, I've got my blue velvet stage suit that's based here and my props that are based here and other stuff that's based here and then another time I'll fly like a couple, a few weeks ago I flew from London Gatwick to Malaga on tour of Angela Sear and Gibraltar and that was from the British HQ so I had all the British blue velvet suit and props so i've got like two hqs one here and one in britain and uh, I, I enjoy that but no fish and chips in hungary butter no fish oh, and well chips. That, you can get fish and chips here <laughs> it's, not, it's not always quite the same uh, it depends you can go to like a, an all british type place or an australian type place and they'll sometimes do fish and chips but most of the fish here is river fish and it's not the same as fish from the sea <laughs> Um, but there are things here that are nice here and there are things there that are nice there and I enjoy that it's always it's like always being on holiday because when I come to Britain I'm experiencing Britain as a person who's just arrived from another country and I notice things that I wouldn't notice if I lived there all the time and it's like being on holiday and I set off to drive to do a gig in Wales or Devon and, and it's like wow you know I'm, 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 I'm exploring you know seeing a country with fresh eyes and then when I come here and I travel to Poland or to Serbia and do a gig, it's um it's like being in, on holiday. You know, it's, it's always nice. It's because every time I change country, it's like a new, fresh experience. It's not going away on holiday. Good. So there you have it, guys. This is yeah. this is Dave Thompson. If you want to, this is what he's all about. You know <laughs> where to go. You know where to get the books. You well, I always to... wanted to be a traveling bum. You know, when I was when I was a teenager, I used to read the books of Jack Kerouac, who you might have heard of. He was an he was an American beat writer, and that was before that you had the hippies, you had the beat generation in the late fifties and early sixties, and they were sort of travelling bums who didn't want to put roots down and just wanted to leave leave a life travelling around, being on the road, and living for today. And the beautiful thing about doing stand up comedy is you can be a travelling bum, but also you have a job where you, you get paid and you know you, you fly somewhere and someone meets you at the airport and drives you to your hotel so it's a really great way of dropping out of society and being outside society um but being a traveling bum and you just face society for you know 30 minutes or 40 minutes in the evening standing behind a microphone make make the cunts laugh and then walk off <laughs> and drink free beer in the dressing room <clears throat> Yeah. hang out in the bar and try and fuck one of them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that, that's, 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 that's what comedy is all about, guys. That's why. I don't know what it is for you, but that's what it is for me. 
So that, that's it. You make sure you buy Dave's book or, or I'll sort you out. Make sure you watch his gigs. Make sure you go to his workshop where you could learn how to be an idiot. And then you yeah. can be, learn how to be an idiot of punchlines. Yeah, you can, um, you can be paid for being an idiot. You can be a professional idiot. Would you say that as a comedian, we are professional knobs? A professional what? Knobs. A professional what? Professional knobs. what? Nobs. Nob. I thought you said nonce. No. <laughs> no. Um, a professional knob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or a professional badge. <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah. I'd rather be a professional badge than a knob. Okay, I think that sounds better. That's more yeah. that sounds more flavour. Yeah. That might be misleading now. That might sound like I'm uh, a trans person or something. <laughs> Mind you, that's quite fashionable, isn't it? So maybe. Oh, no, no, no. Let's, let's not go there. You've got to go with the fashions. You know, I'm getting a sex change operation next week. I don't want to, but you've got to go along with the fashion, haven't you? Yeah, you've got Anything to stand to avoid up. being cancelled. <laughs> right, so you know where to go, guys. Hope you've enjoyed it. Make yeah. sure you give the episode a 10 star view on all platforms. Subscribe. Yeah. I'll see you guys soon. Be nice to animals. Exactly. Be nice to the animals. Don't yeah. be too nice though.